Hi, hello. Welcome to the Dirty Rabbit Hole podcast. I'm Michael Foreman, author. Hi again, it's Michael Foreman, author, calling to you all the way from the Dirty Rabbit Hole podcast for all things dark adult fiction. If you've been tuning in and listening to the podcast, you'll come to know of my novel, Darkness Awakes. I've got a couple of novels available, but I've been posting excerpts from Darkness Awakes. It's available on Amazon.com, but today I'm going to give you yet another excerpt. This is Darkness Awakes, Chapter 1. I and the public know what all school children learn, those to whom evil is done. Do evil in return. W. H. Auden. Prologue. Sleeper killers are everywhere. Australia has 7,692,024 square kilometres of mostly uninhabited land. You can drive for days without seeing another soul. It's perfect to hide a body. Between 1989 and 2001, over 430 homicides in Australia remained unsolved. Not all were committed by a garden-variety murderer. Some loved their pets and enjoyed happy childhoods. It was a new demon that woke and led them to act. Spontaneous and seemingly motiveless murders have occurred before. I know of five such occasions, and I know the reason behind each one well. I know it too well. We know that depression, a relatively benign affliction, is on the increase. It can leave a trail of destruction if left unmonitored. We also know that depression descends to other dysphoric emotions such as loneliness, worthlessness, rejection, anger and resentment, traits which are also found in killers. This raises a question. Could depression lead to murder? Perhaps our ancestors understood mental illnesses better, the reasons why some people can't be cured and locking the maddest minds away in asylums solved much. The sick from persecution, the families from public embarrassment and innocent women from men like me. Chapter 1 She's in fine form once again. I had hoped that she wouldn't be coming to this year's party. The humid night air is no match for the fiery venom pouring out of the mouth of the obese, vulgar woman on the opposite side of the table. That half-masticated piece of cow she's been chewing on rolls between one fattened, wobbly jowl and the other. Its red juice spits forward and dribbles down her chin as she shouts her opinion to all and sundry. As always, the crowd is mesmerised. It's not because they enjoy her company, it's because they have no choice. This poor excuse for a human steals all of their attention as she drowns them in vile and toxic conversation, scandalous gossip, abusive language and bloody rare steak and red wine. She's had some encouragement. An empty bottle of bourbon sits right in front of her and a freshly opened bottle of red sits right beside it. A half glass of it lunges forward in her puffy left hand to every offensive word uttered, every disgusting punchline, to every dirty joke that slips past that mash of meat. 
I've never met a woman so abusively offensive. She's an unwelcome sight, too. Some of that wiry, unkempt, jet-black hair is pulled back, grouped into what loosely looks like a ponytail, while the rest of it falls about in disorganised tufts around her head and face. Silvery roots lead the hairline at the front, indicating that the dye job hasn't been maintained. It also suggests that this feisty woman is much older than she looks, and, if the colour were to grow out naturally, it would add another twenty years to her appearance, turning her into the old maid she's fast trying to avoid being. A plunging, square neckline exposes what resembles two enormous walruses. The pale, veiny giants meet at a very obvious and deep crevice, then down and across two pink places that peek out each time she laughs raucously. It's a hideously short black number, hardly appropriate for someone her size. Most likely she bullied a shop assistant into selling it to her, as no one with any fashion sense would concur that this choice of dress was a flattering one. Maxine Sewell sees herself as one of the in-crowd. She dresses in young clothes and speaks like a teenager, although it's been well over 13 years since she was one. And, just like a teenager... She's immature, speaks at the most inappropriate times. She demands attention, especially from the boys. Bearing those big tits are just one of the many weapons she has in her tawdry arsenal to ensure she gets it. There's that mouth, too, like a shotgun, blasting its way into everyone's chatter, spoiling the atmosphere, silencing everyone at once. Turn it up, she bellows, dribbling wine from her mouth sucking it back before it runs too far. Fucking turn it up! I love this one! Maxine cuts Sharon off in mid-sentence. As she wipes the mess dribbling from her chin with the back of her wrist, Sharon is left speechless. What's to happen next? Sharon's new to these little Christmas parties of ours, which means she's new to Maxine's ways. It's not like she didn't know about Maxine. Surely she's heard enough through the grapevine. If anyone deserves to be talked about, it's Maxine. I've never understood why budding photographers are so attracted to her. She's never friendly to them. She walks all over them and treats them, though, as they don't exist. Perhaps it's because Maxine must look like our leader. <laughs> How wrong they are. Sharon is small fry, so Maxine wouldn't see her in her viewfinder unless she had something to gain from it. Nevertheless... Sharon's keen to impress. It's her first social event since turning professional, and she's excited to be here. She tries to speak again, but Maxine's not interested. Who gives a fuck? Is it Sharon? That's got to be your name, right? That's your name. Yeah, well, just shut up for a bit. I've got to hear this song. Turn it up, Julie! I love this song! Poor Sharon. She never stood a chance. A self-absorbed narcissist like Maxine couldn't care less about anyone other than herself. She's utterly tactless. We've all experienced her vicious tongue at one time or another. When a thought pops into her mind, she never tempers it a bit. It comes out as it's made, raw and unfiltered. Maxine thinks that her abruptness is a positive trait, a good sign of honesty, a redeeming quality rarely seen in others. She says that men prefer honest women over those lying little bitches who spend all their time in front of mirrors gawking at their beauty. It doesn't explain why, at 32, she's single and just can't keep a man.
Maybe it explains it well. Jules, I said turn it up. Oh, fuck, can't you hear me? I'd feel sorry for any man who tried to challenge Maxine. Jules! Julianne is Maxine's best friend. She's the host of this get-together. The two of them are as thick as thieves, and they've been like that ever since the two met years ago. They party together and gossip all the time. In many ways, Julianne is Maxine, only quieter and more intelligent. She loves the limelight too, but rather than bulldozing her way across others, she delicately takes the time to assess the social landscape before opening her mouth. She's the most attractive woman at the party. She has amazing legs and a tiny waist to suit. Everyone knows that if Maxine and Julianne weren't in the same business, they'd never be friends. She is one of those blonde-haired, mirror-loving bitches that Maxine despises. They are a contradiction, but we all know that Julianne has something Maxine wants. Julianne knows photography, and she has all the contacts in this business. That's why Maxine persists. She makes use of Julianne's scraps. Julianne's been in the kitchen for most of the night preparing food for the rest of us. And that's just how Maxine likes it. With Julianne's shapely legs out of the way, Maxine's free to command as much attention as she likes. Julianne can't hear Maxine calling her because the stereo inside the house is loud. There's no response, so nothing happens. Sharon makes another attempt to speak. Have you ever used... Oh, you silly girl. You're such a slow learner. No, Sharon, I've never fucking used whatever you're using, and I, I don't care what you use. Will you hold on for just one minute? Just hold on. You'll get your chance. Jules, can you hear me in there? That woman's mouth is worse than a grumpy Monday morning tradesman. Maxine rotates her large head over one shoulder. Hey, Jules, what you doing in there? Rewind it. Come on, turn it up. Julianne notices and comes to the kitchen window. What? Did you call me? Did I call you? I've been calling out for the last five minutes. Rewind this song and turn it up. I love this one. Maxine points a finger upwards. Julianne nods once and makes her way into the living room. When did Julianne become Maxine's bitch? <laughs> Obviously, Julianne's getting something out of this relationship too. The music stops and starts over. We all wait so that Maxine can sing along to wide open spaces. She drunkenly sways from side to side, bellowing out some speculative notes, slurping and sucking on her wine glass in between verses. The glass forms many dribble trails along its edge, one for each sip. It's an apt song. That mouth has some available wide open space going on. And judging by the stories she tells us about her love life, She's got another. She's always said that she was a pretty good singer in her younger years, but I can't hear it. Actually, she says she's good at many things, but if she's as good at them as she is at singing and photography, clearly she isn't good at much. It's social disgrace that brought her to the world of wedding photography. She'd disagree, of course. She says that all her life she's wanted to be a wedding photographer. It's all bullshit. Sit down and drink with her for a while and you'll get another story. It turns out that she's tried her hands at many things, but every pursuit has ended the same way. She'd find a new job, settle into it, 
pursue a male colleague or a client, bed the guy, and, when it all ended, she'd lash out and burn everything and everyone in the process. She's actually a trained teacher's aide. Photography was just a hobby. She'd been doing the deputy principal of the school and then messed things up when it ended. Her contract was suddenly terminated and she found herself unemployed. One day, while searching for a new job, a call came in from a needy girlfriend desperately seeking cheap wedding photography. Maxine hadn't shot anything more than a few sunsets and flowers, but she managed to convince the bride-to-be to give her a go. Maxine did the wedding, along with one of the groomsmen. The bride absolutely loved the results. Of the photos, of course. Why wouldn't she? She paid practically nothing for them, and had some free gossip thrown into the package as well. Maxine proudly boasted about her wonderfully creative and innovative style and had a batch of business cards printed on the following Monday. She introduced herself to anyone who'd listen as a professional photographer. Apart from her client, no one's seen any of those photos, but I can tell you this, there's no creativeness in anything she does. Mostly, she copies what all the rest of us are already doing and she does it badly. She says she's in love with weddings. It's true. She's attracted to them. She loves the dresses. She loves the champagne, the gorgeous girls, the champagne, the high-heeled shoes, the champagne, the celebration, and even more champagne. Her love is so great that sometimes she falls down and has to catch a taxi home. Maxine isn't in love with photographing weddings. She's in love with the love story. She's not married, so being a part of someone else's day is the next best thing. She met Julianne at a photography convention and immediately invited herself to Julianne's home for drinks. During a series of wild nights, she siphoned off as much information as she could about the business and the people within it. What Julianne imparted was almost criminal. There should be laws against size 22 women serving drinks to their size 8 friends. The song finishes. Oh, thank God that's over. Maxine waits for applause, but when nothing happens, she stretches an arm out as if to encourage it. Oh, how pathetic. A handful of people make a noise, but it's only done to acknowledge her and return to their conversations. She clenches down on the ball of meat that's still in her mouth. Play it again, Jules. They love me. There's a murmur, but none agree. Play it again, Jules. This time I'll do it fucking properly. Oh, please don't, Maxine. Why won't she take a hint? She swallows the bolus, forcing it down in one gulp. The lump, struggling to move, causes her to gag. She ignores the irritation and struggles to heave that enormous frame to its feet, coughing and gagging all the way. She rises and swallows again. This time the lumpy mass begins to make its way awkwardly down her throat. <laughs> Unfortunately, it passes without incident. Damn. Okay, I'll sing this like I would have done when I had my band. Jules, you got that song ready? Okay, everyone shut up now. The song's going to start. I need to concentrate. You got it ready yet, Jules? Okay. One, two, three, go. She staggers and readies herself for the song's introduction. But the music doesn't come. There's only silence. She turns and yells again. Fuck, Jules. We're waiting out here. Come on. Come on, Julianne, let's get this over with. From where I'm sitting, I can see Julianne rushing about, busily pressing buttons. She turns around and calls out something. 
Maxine sways a little and turns back towards us, reaches for the bottle of red and pours herself another glass. With any luck, Julianne's broken the machine. Maxine leans forward and in a sotto voice says, You can't ask blondes to do anything, can you? You're so fucking stupid, eh? I can't work anything out. Jesus, Julie's the worst. The group chuckles quietly. However, I doubt they're laughing with her. We have four blondes at this party tonight. One is my partner. Another is Sharon, the new girl next to Maxine and Jenny, Maxine's little protege. The last one is Julianne, supposedly her best friend. I look past Nina, towards Doug, watching him slowly shake his head from side to side. The song starts over and this time it's louder. Maxine's less in tune than before and even more wine sprays across the table. We have the Dixie Chicks to thank for that. The music ends and she's thrilled with herself. Fuck! I rock! Don't I fucking rock everyone! Sit down, Maxine! Andrew's had enough. He's the first one to speak out. It's about time someone did. But I was good, Andrew. Sit down, Maxine. Not everyone wants to listen to that. They came for a Christmas party, not a concert from you. Amen to that. Andrew is Maxine's ongoing love interest. They've been dating off and on for a while, and she's never understood why Andrew won't take it seriously. She remains confident, therefore hangs on his every word. Andrew's never going to commit. <laughs> he knows her too well. Mitchell thinks I'm good, don't you, Mitchell? Ah, oh, surely I shouldn't be put in such a position to answer that, should I? She points to me and stares, waiting for my response. Well? Actually, before I utter another word, she snaps. Oh, go fuck yourself, Mitchell. I knew it. It's the wrong answer. She turns to Darren and asks him the same question. Andrew cuts in. Sit down, Maxine. But I sit. Sit, he demands, snapping his fingers, pointing at her chair. Like a master ordering his hound to obey, he waits for his command to take effect. Down! Maxine ceases yelling, but she doesn't sit right away. Instead, she turns and glares at him. She wants to speak. I can see the fire burning behind her eyes. What could she possibly say to him? He's the only real prospect she's had in five years. She wouldn't dare ruin her chances by tossing him a few of her choice words. Unperturbed, he continues pointing. It's a standoff. Everyone's captivated. She slowly roses her heavy face away from Andrew, back towards me. Well, Mitchell, you sit there with that smug look on your... Down! He orders again. Her head snaps back. This is brilliant. And Doug is smiling broadly. I feel my own cheeks beginning to lift too. She's probably busting to give Andrew a piece of her mind. She blinks. Sways a little lifts her wine glass to her lips, downs the rest in one go and collapses back into her chair. Furiously, she rattles the base of the glass onto the top of the table. While Andrew remains single and available, he wields power over her. It must be torturous for Maxine to keep her mouth shut. Just superb. The partygoers return to their conversations and I notice her angry bloodshot eyes staring back at me between the bottles in front of her. It's not over yet. Not by a long shot. This wasn't about singing or photography matters. Tonight, it's about staring me down and finding out why I didn't come alone. She's thought there might have been a chance for us. Andrew is off limits. 
He's off to meet another hot date once this party ends. All of the other men are spoken for, and Maxine's annoyed because there's a real possibility that she'll be going home alone again. Yes, I've been on Maxine's to-do list for quite some time. Regardless of her desire to pursue Andrew, she's made it known to me many times that if I ever needed someone to bounce off, she'd be the first one to make the jump. She assumes that I'd leap her way. What a joke. I've never given her any reason to believe this. But what's made Maxine so angry towards me is that I brought a mystery guest along. She's not my wife, and it appears I'm not available either. There's only one thing Maxine hates more than playing second fiddle to another woman, and that's not knowing to whom she's losing. Maxine hates being left out of the loop. When we arrived, Nina smiled and just said hello. She said little ever since. I'd strategically placed her between Douglas and myself to keep her from having to deal with Maxine or Julianne's probing personalities. Doug doesn't care too much for Maxine's nonsense. In fact, he's all about misinforming both of them as much as he can. He's done a pretty good job so far. Nina leans over to me and asks in a whisper, Why is she like that? Low esteem. I've never seen anyone behave like that before. Don't worry. She probably won't remember most of it tomorrow. I think I'd want to forget too. Julianne slides the screen door back. Okay, everything's ready. Just pick up a plate at the end of the table and serve yourself. We slide our chairs from underneath the table and rise, but not Maxine. She remains in her seat and begins to cut herself another portion of that very rare steak in front of her. How come she got served first, whispers Nina. She wouldn't fit through the door, I guess. It had to come to her. Nina smiles as we step inside. Maxine's voice bellows out again from behind us. Julianne! Julie Sweets! <coughs> Can you get me some more, uh, slaw? You know, while you're up? Sure, Maxine, doll. How's that steak? Through another mouthful of blood, she replies. Bloody great! Just the way I like it. I could eat a horse. I whispered to Nina. Aha! I knew a horse could fit inside a cow. Giggling. Stop it. <laughs> That's nasty. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I can't believe, you know, how horrible she is. Is she always like this? No, she usually vomits by now. What? You're kidding, right? No? Really? Are you serious? Vomit? Like a bulimic? Maxine? Bulimic? Please, look at the size of her. You know what I mean. Well, in a way, you're right. She'll throw up just so she can go on partying. That way, she won't collapse and miss any of the juicy gossip that's on offer. She's got no class whatsoever. I shouldn't say so. I mean, I don't even know her. But I think I agree. Don't say anything to her about us, okay? If you do, you won't get rid of her. You know they're going to ask anyway. Yes, but tell them you're my cousin or something. Your cousin? What about being my hairdresser? Tell them, tell them that. It'll throw her off the scent. Hairdresser? That's, <laughs> that's silly. Don't worry. It's easier if I just don't say anything at all. You know me. The less people know about me, the less I have to explain. We grab a couple of plates and shuffle along, filling them as we go. So, what would you say to them if they asked you? She asks. Oh, I don't know. Maybe something like, Oh, I found her in the street and thought I'd take her home with me. In the street? No? No, you silly man. 
You should already know by now that I'm actually more of a back alley kind of girl. Oh, yes. You're a back alley girl. Your back alley is a bit of all right. Mitchell! <laughs> Doug's head appears between us. Everything okay? Um, Mitchell was just saying how nice all this food looks. Hmm, you best keep that kind of talk to yourselves. You don't want that lot getting their claws into it. You won't live it down once they know. He turns his head sideways and lifts his chin in the direction of Maxine. That one will have a field day if she gets a hold of anything. He steps back into line and Nina places her hand over her mouth, whispering, Oh my God, he hurt us. She giggles cheekily and hides her face behind my shoulder. Doug steps in again. Personally, I don't care, but they do. They've got nothing better to do than poke around in everyone else's business. So watch out. You're in their sights. It's good advice. Maxine and Julianne always have their talons at the ready. It's a sport for them to find out as much as they can about the lives of others. The more sordid, the more attractive it is, and ours is just that. We return to our seats with our plates, full of food, and begin eating, keeping to ourselves, watching and listening to the others talk around us, about their lives, their businesses, and the plans they have for the Christmas holidays. Maxine's eyes constantly dart across the table, studying our movements, looking for signs that might give something away. Nina can't be a family member of mine. She's far too attentive and affectionate. The curiosity must be eating Maxine's insides. The party's been going well, and I've enjoyed watching Maxine fester. The meal is good too, and the group is settled. Everything is fine until Maxine decides it's time to ask the question that's been bugging her all night. So, Nina, what, what do you do? Where do you come from? Are you a phot photographer as well? You'd think a bottle of spirits and a couple of bottles of wine would have stopped her. It'd bring a rhinoceros to the ground. Silence falls over the table. Maxine knows damn well that Nina isn't a photographer. If she was, Julianne would have said so already. Doug interrupts. Nina's just lost her mother, Maxine. She's not up to it. Will you leave her alone? Okay. What? Who died? Ah, <laughs> good old Doug. There he is again, saving the day. Good one, mate. That should stop Maxine. I bet the rest of that lot is disappointed. What? Die? What? Nah. She doesn't look sad to me. She's fine. You're just pulling my... And Andrew barks. Maxine! What? But she just eat. But I've told you once. I won't tell you again. Be nice. Go back to your food and wine. She's just lost her mother. You heard that clearly enough. Everyone heard it. It's time to be quiet now. Maxine turns to Julie for support. Nah, does she look sad to you, Jules? Huh? Julie may be her friend. But she's not stupid. She may want to know what's going on too, but she's not going to ask for a death certificate to prove if it's true or not. A tiny whimper comes from beside me, and then Nina's head flops down onto my right shoulder. She bawls out loud. Doug grabs a napkin off me and hands it to her. Doug turns to Maxine. Now look what you've gone and done, you callous creature. You have no decency or respect. Why does it have to always be about you? I hold Nina and she covers her face with a napkin. It's an act. I suspect that this has all been Doug's doing. 
in the softest, most apologetic voice I think I've heard Maxine ever use. She says, Oh, I'm sorry. So sorry. I had no idea, love. I can't remain quiet. Look, why don't you mind your own business? You've done quite enough. You always do this shit. It took me a lot to get her into coming out tonight, and now you're ruining it. She didn't come here to be harassed by the likes of you. Oh, I'm sorry, but I, I said I was sorry. What, what else can I do? You can be quiet now. That's what else you can do. Maxine is silenced. No one runs to her defence, not even Julianne. Of course, none of it's true, but the bitch from hell had been put in her place, along with those nosy acolytes of hers who always sit in the wings, waiting to jump on board and scratch about whenever the dirt is stirred. Julianne, Donna, Bronman, and that new recruit Jenny will have to choose another time to dig. Doug is a genius. There's no defence against death. With the group slowly finishing their meals, the party mellows. Doug breaks the silence. What about that guy in Jimboomba who killed his wife last night? Terrible, wasn't it? The one who hit his wife with a bat? asks Jenny. No, replies Sharon. That's the one from the other night. This one used a knife, remember? He stabbed her several times. The neighbour said that he had been threatening her heaps of times with a baseball bat before that. Oh, yeah. That's the one with the trampy-looking wife, right? Yeah, it's funny you said that because that's what I thought. All that makeup and no teeth. Gross. Anyway, those neighbours said they could hear their arguments from next door. Apparently, they'd been arguing for years. Julianne reacts. Oh, my God. Why didn't they see it coming then? Why didn't they do anything about it before this? But did you see that guy they interviewed? You know, the neighbour from across the street? How creepy was he? Oh, yeah, he was scary. He kept doing that thing, you know, licking his hand and wiping his comb over with a spit. I wouldn't be surprised if he was in on it too. He gave me the creeps. Rachel, a redhead, who'd made a special trip in from the west, suddenly piped up from the darkened extremities of the deck. He was a freak. You should hang that rotten husband up by his balls, if you ask me. Hang on, I said, squinting into the darkness, trying to make out her face. By his balls, Rachel? That's a bit harsh. What if he didn't do it? They all turned to me and stared. What are you all looking at? It's only alleged at this point, isn't it? Nobody said that he's actually committed the murder, right? Why hang him by anything if it turns out he didn't do it? They laugh sarcastically. From the darkness, a razor-edged reply came back. He beat and raped her, Mitchell. He stabbed her and slit her throat. He's guilty. How much more proof do you need? I laughed cynically. Now hold on, Rachel. You've added rape now. No one said anything about rape either. You can't tell me that this murdering bastard didn't do that to her. The report's clear. There's been no rape and he hasn't been charged with anything. Maxine pipes up. Bullshit! Of course he raped her. Bloody hell. Can't that whale stay quiet? That fucking monster killed his whoring wife. I say, do what Rachel says and hang him from son of a bitch. You send him a card from me. Go on. I'll fucking sign it. Whore? Now we're calling the wife a whore? That's not going to help, Maxine. Bull fucking shit. It'll help everyone when that, that scum is off the street. You hang him. Doug interjects. Mitchell's right, Maxine. 
The report hasn't said that he's done it. Bullshit, he did it. Rachel's voice returns from the darkness. Yep, he's guilty, all right. Let's face it, he should be made to do the time. But he's not guilty, Rachel, I plead. That's what I'm saying. We can't say guilty until someone says he is guilty. Andrew interrupts. Look, Mitchell, I know you like to see the world through those rose-coloured glasses, and it's obvious that it's not official yet, but the police wouldn't be questioning him if they didn't have a very good reason to do so. I know, but you may not want to believe it, but it seems to me that the police know a whole lot more about this than we do. Maxine pumps a fist into the air and then flips me the bird. But that's my point, Andrew. They have made an official statement. That statement is that he has been taken in for questioning. He hasn't been charged. I wish we'd stop inventing stories around it. Jesus Christ! It's Maxine again. Will you two just shut the fuck up about it now? You go on and on and on. I, I want to sing, I want to sing Dancing Queen! Doug interrupts. Hang on, Maxine. Mitchell apparently knows more than us. Isn't that right, Mitchell? Huh? I thought you were on my side, mate. What? No, I'm not. Andrew said it. It's the police who know more about this than us. Why pass judgment when the police are unable to? Well, I'm convinced that he did it, pronounces Rachel, stepping into the light, defiantly pointing her finger towards the middle of the table where the rest of us are seated. Me too, adds Julianne. Same here, reply Andrew, Doug and Sharon. I look around at the others, waiting for their responses. Well, I don't care what you think. I'm not convinced. Yet? They all shake their heads in disbelief, and the general consensus is that he did it, and I'm wrong for thinking otherwise. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm just saying that nothing's been proved. All right, then. I see that I'm the only one. Don't worry, says Doug condescendingly. It's okay to be wrong once in a while. Once in a while, laughs Maxine. He's fucking wrong all the time. I can't stay and listen to this anymore. Where are you going? Don't leave me, whispers Nina. I'm not leaving you. I just have to visit the little photographer's room. Yeah, go on, you dumb fucking cunt. You're wrong and you'll know it. Will you be quiet, Maxine? Just be quiet. Nina reaches for my hand and squeezes it. I lean in and whisper back. I'll be fine. Don't worry. I'll be back in a minute. As I reach for the door, Maxine gives another spray of venom. Probably, probably gonna have a cry now. Right, Mitchell? Oh, just please shut up, Maxine. I'm sick of your constant shouting. The whole neighbourhood can hear you. Why don't you just shut up for a while and give the world a break? As I was about to slide the door across. Why? What? what did you just say to me? You fucking cunt. Come back here and you say that to my face. I'll knock your fucking block off. She couldn't get out of her seat to knock the foam off the head of a beer. I knew it was the alcohol talking, but I still wanted to take those empty bottles of hers and smash them over her head. I slide the door open and close it behind me instead. Yeah, that's what I thought, you chicken shit. She's in fine form. As I walk through the kitchen, I can hear Andrew muttering something to Maxine. Yeah, well, he's still chicken shit. Now, what about doing Dancing Queen? Let's sing Dancing Queen! I love Abba! The music cranks up a minute later, and Maxine's voice drowns out the party again. Why do I bother coming out to this thing every year? Clearly I don't fit in. Clearly I'm unreasonable. 
Looking into the bathroom mirror, staring at the face of the stranger staring back at me, I cannot begin to wonder who that person is supposed to be. Why am I still associating with these people? Every time I come here, I'm left feeling less than I was when I arrived. These women are brutal. Maxine is the worst of all. Whore? Tramp? The creepy neighbour co-assailant? The rape that never happened? Where does this all come from? And why attack me because I don't agree? My gut burbles and churns. Beads of sweat form on my brow and my hands begin to shake. Indeed, the mirror offers no answers. All it does is reflect an image of a furious face that always asks unanswerable questions, along with the doubts I have that these so-called rational people are in any way civil. I shouldn't be so sensitive about it. It's not like any of them matter. I shouldn't care what they think. Right now, they're nothing more than a bunch of inebriated photographers. There is a simple way to see reason through the doubt. There's a simple litmus test to see if I'm right. I call it, what if it were me, test. I put myself in the suspect's shoes to find out if fair reporting exists and if fair judgments are taking place in the community. If it were me in this man's position, then my wife and neighbour have been insulted in the worst possible way. I've been condemned for committing murder and rape. The slimy-looking character across the street deserves to go to jail too for having bad hair. All of these judgments are set down before I get a chance to speak and defend myself. The angry mob wants a crucifixion and they want it now. Alcohol didn't alter this mob's opinions. It set them free. It released an ancient, darker side of man that we have since learned to suppress. The only thing missing here is some dirty hands, stones, sticks and the spilling of blood. Sobriety makes good liars of us. It conceals the urges of our inner animal and its drive to return to the surface. But he's always there, steering us his way from the inside. We have no reason to do so, but we're compelled to draw lines and take sides. We identify our enemies and make strategies to protect what's ours by eliminating threats. Everybody jostles for prime position in a deep-seated war that's powered by primitive energy. What about civility? Oh, that's fine, when we're all civil. A savage beast won't get out of his cage if alcohol isn't greasing up its bars. But they did get greased, didn't they? He's out now, and this bathroom has become my place of sanctuary. If only I had more to drink. If only I too had regressed and released my own inner beast. It'd all make sense if I could sing a bloodlust chant along with them. As the dinner plates are cleared, and yet another round of bottles is opened for those gathered around the table, the conversation continues to fog. The little kings and queens have all the answers, and all the land's problems are solved over a mediocre red and a dish with sides. I've always felt that we are basically primeval. It's only sobriety and a veneer of lifelong training that keeps the primitive self contained. We're taught to make the right choices and to have the ability to understand right from wrong. 
It is what makes us human. Without this training, this rigid guidance, we would be no better than simple creatures crawling about the forest floor, searching for food, making inexplicable grunts between the times of feeding and mating. The rules say we must continue to contain and arrange ourselves in accordance with those around us and pass on those same desires to conform to our children. Individualism is encouraged, but it's a word that has more complexity in its sound than it does in its meaning. It suggests that we have vast room to move within when at most we are merely a series of similarly aligned individuals seeking acceptance through common interests. We're allowed a few quirky differences, but mostly our goal is to not step too far away from the majority. It quickly becomes apparent that similarities, not differences, matter most. Differences only attract hostility. As I return to the party and look about the deck, watching and listening to the drunken conversations, I can see that veneer of order dissolving. These strangers at the dinner table are not of royalty, and they have no particular qualification to speak on most of the topics tonight. They have no real kingdoms, but they find it acceptable to attack the lives and kingdoms of outsiders. They're entertained by it. They feel better when they do it. It's comforting. It's man's inner beast tugging from beneath a layer of order and calm. Tonight, there's no damage, no harm, not a drop of blood was spilt. Words are weapons. Smiles and laughter signify victory. With the battle talk over, the outsiders ousted, and the world's affairs in order once again, it's time to leave. Brisbane is extremely warm and humid in the summer. Sometimes a thunderstorm will come along and cool a hot night down. But, unfortunately, a storm isn't forecast for this evening. It's a clear night, and, as such, I have to return to the only storm I'm left with, the one that's been brewing in the pit of my stomach. I give Nina a wink, and that's all it takes to spark her fire. She knows what's coming. With the last dregs drunk, the coffee cups gathered and set onto the kitchen bench, it's time to say goodbye. Somehow, I have a feeling that Maxine won't be attending next year's Christmas party. Chapter 1 is done. Well, that's this excerpt done and dusted. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to read Darkness Awakes, this is the book from which the excerpt comes. It's available on Amazon. It's available as a pa uh, paperback, but you can also get it in the what we call now the traditional way, the traditional method of reading, as a digital file, which is available for free if you are a member of the Kindle Unlimited system. That digital file can be read on practically everything, anything, laptop, computers, your phone, a Kindle, a Kobo, anything. Just uh, go to Amazon. Look for the Kindle version and it will tell you about all the different file types it's available from and it'll suggest what is the best one for you. So I said it was free if you're a member of the Kindle Unlimited system. It's only a couple of dollars if you want to buy it outright and you can have it within seconds, in fact, before this podcast finishes. If you want to come to my website and find out more about me, 
It's located at www.mfp.com.au forward slash your throat. That's M for Michael, F for Foreman, P for publishing, .com.au forward slash your throat or one word. That's it. I hope wherever you are in the world that you're having a really great day or night. Just remember, it can always rain on your parade. See you later. Mm-hmm.